0: You may not be used to a Jesuit leading you in prayer, but why don't we uh, Sorry, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of our minds and our intellects, our wills, that we may serve you in our thoughts and words and in our actions. Give us the grace to hate all our sins and to love wisdom and beauty and truth. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, Thomas Aquinas, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There are two firsts for me today. This is the first time uh, that I've ever been on campus. One thing my biography there didn't mention, that I'm also a permanent uh, instructor at Steubenville, uh, Franciscan University. I go there every May and do an Augustine class for their, uh, their, their growing MA program. And my first day at Steubenville, a student walked by full of tattoos and piercings and a cigarette, and I turned to my friend, and I said, what's that? And he looked at me and said, we're not Christendom. <laughs> so I took a picture of whatever professor has an ashtray proudly outside his door down by the faculty offices, and that'll probably be on the front of the Steubenville News. Um, so thanks for smoking, I guess, is the lesson there. As Dr. Cuddeback so generously said, I, I, most of my work is in Augustine, but I've become interested in how Thomas approaches some of the same questions, and so for tonight... I uh, wrote this talk. It's the first time I've given it, my other first. So I need to read it and not engage so uh, actively with you. But in order to assuage that little bit of impersonal reading, I gave you a handout, and there's, a, there's plenty of them, um, thanks to this young man, your computer expert, who happened to be walking in the bar at 8 a.m., to whom we gave this task, why he was in the bar at 8 a.m., he can take up with Father. Um, <laughs> Alright. So the major quotes and the quotes for discussion and questions and answers and exchange afterwards are there in the booklet. A generation ago, the eminent student of St. Thomas Aquinas, the French Dominican, Marie Dominique Chenoux, famously claimed that, quote, without an Augustine, it is impossible to conceive of a St. Thomas, unquote. Then Chenoux began to show how important key Augustinian principles were to Thomas's thought a trajectory continued in our own time by Jean-Pierre Torrel, in his work revealing how Thomas' appreciation of Augustine grew richer and more reliant as his own thought developed. We know that throughout the Summa, for example, Augustine of Hippo is shorthandedly referred to as the theologian and is quoted more than any other post-biblical theological authority. Scholarly opinion and word counting aside, The convergence of these two great lights is nowhere better confirmed than in Albert of Brescia's reputed vision of Augustine's ecclesial endorsement of Thomas during the years he was campaigning vigorously for the latter's canonization, found in one of the responsories from the Feast of Aquinas in the old Dominican breviary. We are here made privy to Albert of Brescia's deposition at a meeting of churchmen considering Thomas's sainthood. And this is the first quote on your handout. There appeared to me, as I watched in prayer, two revered revered personages, clothed in wondrous splendor. One of them wore a mitre on his head, the other was clad in the habit of the friar's preachers. And this latter bore on his head a golden crown. Round his neck he wore two rings, one of silver, the other of gold. And on his breast he had an immense precious stone, which filled the church with light. His cloak, too, was sewn with precious stone, and his tunic and his hood were full of snowy white. And of the one who wore the mitre said to me, Brother Albert, why art thou thus filled with wonder? Thy prayers are heard, for listen, I am Augustine, the doctor of the church, and I am sent to thee to tell thee of the doctrine and the glory of Brother Thomas of Akeen, who was here with me, for he is my son. He in all things has followed my doctrine and that of the apostles, and by his teaching he's illumined the church of God. This is signified by the precious stones which you see, and especially by the one he carries on his breast for it signifies the upright intention which he ever had in view of his defense of the faith and which he showed in his words. These precious stones, then, and especially that great one, signify the many books and works that he wrote, and they show that he is equal to me in glory, save only in the golden halo of virginity. He surpasses me. It seems here we have heavenly warrant. If we're going to celebrate Thomas's sanctity on his feast day, we first have to believe Augustine. If one is going to be a good Thomist, one must first be a convinced Augustinian. (coughs) This afternoon, let us look at one point of key Christian doctrine where Thomas and Augustine converge. We shall explore their respective thoughts on the all-too-long-dismissed doctrine of human deification. Synonymous with divinization, or the Greek equivalent, theosis, deification means, as you know, all you Latin scholars here, I understand, means literally becoming gods, a definition that has to be qualified by an indispensable understanding of participation. That is, any orthodox Catholic theology of deification will pivot on the great exchange. In gods literally becoming human, humans are empowered to become god participatorily and adjectivally. In the sun's assumed humanity lies humanity's participated in divinity, rendering through baptism the human person a partaker in God's own triune nature. In Christ, the elect can now participate but never possess divinity, as the heart of the gospel message is the fact that Christ makes himself available for a new life for men and women to live, and that without the incarnate God, fallen creatures remain simply that, finite and moribund. But in the body... Of Christ, the fullness of humanity is revealed, and therefore in Christ all humans can realize that grace state which fills them with a divinity shining through their now transfigured lives of faith, hope, and charity. And if this sounds too platitudinous or pious, I imagine and I hope at least there's one moment in each of your lives where you refrain from saying something or hitting someone or doing something stupid um, because you're a Christian. At that moment, you get a taste of what deification is—that you actually elevated, you were elevated above your own biological instincts, your own fallen passions. All right, and this is what we teach about baptism. Right, we are now like Christ, a two-natured being. He was hypostatically, perfectly human. We are now participatorily divine. We can do things that only God can do. We can love. We can live forever. We can, um, we can be merciful and these things. Okay, this way of thinking of the Christian life has thankfully been receiving much more academic attention the past ten years or so. Studies and scholarly essays abound. Volumes and conferences have been dedicated to examining how deification plays a role in such diverse thinkers as Martin Luther. I don't know if it works, but the studies are there. Um, Cardinal Newman or in our past three holy fathers, in the sacred movements of the mass, as well as throughout our Catechism. In fact, it is here that a doctrine of deification receives probably its most lasting teaching, right, in the catechism. I mean, they only come out every, every 500 years, so buy a hardbound copy. Um, turning to the catechism, sections 457 to 460 give four reasons why the word became flesh. 457 to 460, they're really beautiful. Illuminating there the creedal statement, he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. First, we learn in section 457, the word became flesh for us in order to save us by reconciling us with God the Father. So the first effect of the incarnation, the first reason is reconciliation. After the initial reconciliation that took place at Calvary, we next here at 458, the word became flesh so that we might know God's love. An intriguing epistemological reason, seemingly arguing that we must first see and sense love before we can know love, right? Love had to become incarnate and sensible. The third reason for the incarnation in the catechism is to provide for us a model of holiness. But the fourth and final reason is one which ends with a summary of Thomas's soteriology, your second quote. The word became flesh to make us partakers of the divine nature, 2 Peter one four, a very important yeah. passage. For this is why the word became man and the son of God became the son of man, so that man by entering into communion with the word and thus receiving divine sonship or filiality, right? we're not all sons, but I'll let you hash that up, might become a son or daughter of God. Irenaeus, right? About 180. The son of God became man so that we might become God. Athanasius, right? 373. You know Athanasius' nickname in the ancient world was the the black dwarf, so you know two things about him. And then Thomas. The only begotten son of God wanting to make us sharers in his divinity, assumed our nature so that he made man might make men gods. Here the church's greatest theologians are enrolled, Peter, Irenaeus, Athanasius, and Aquinas. We see how deification is the final work of the incarnation of Christ, who came not only to reconcile us to the Father, not only to make us holy lovers, but now conforms us to his own divine filiality, his own divine sonship. Note, however, There's not one Western father and no one between Nicaea and Aquinas in this great list of theologians. But this paper today sets out to discuss two points. First, what is Augustine's doctrine of deification? And secondly, because we're honoring here the great angelic doctor, from where did Augustine, from where, where from Augustine did Thomas not only draw, but even go ahead of him in teaching that the entire point of the Christian life is to become another Christ? We shall achieve these goals by four central areas. So here are the four parts of your talk. First, the Imago Dei and the created capacity for divine union. Secondly, the incarnation, which affects this union. Thirdly, the role of the Holy Spirit. And fourthly, how the Church's sacraments make real the ongoing incarnation by whom sinners are transformed into continuations of Christ's own life. So the first part, the Imago Dei. In the opening pages of scripture, the author of Genesis depicts the human person as the sole creature made in the image and likeness of God. This divine imprint in each of us teaches that we are not only like God in his reason and goodness, but it also demands that our ultimate end be found not in ourselves, but in another, just the way the persons of the Trinity are wholly dependent. hmm? Patterned on the divine persons of the Trinity, who find their own personal identity only through the perfect gift of self, the human person, too, must learn to see his or her truest character in the other. This is a word, heterological, I love that, the heterological anthropology. I don't know where I found that, but it just sounds so GRE-ish, right? (laughs) That we have a heterological being. We find our logos in the heteros, in the other. Is the basis for any theology of Christian deification in that the human person is created to be, as Augustine knows all too well, a restless heart until one comes to rest in God. And this paper will argue, not until you come to rest as God. At the beginning of his literary career, and as he is finally extraditing himself out of his Manichaean deprecation of body and all things creaturely, Augustine depicts the human soul's conversing with reason personified in a work called The Soliloquies, a, a, a word actually Augustine made up, soul is locor, to speak to oneself, speaking alone. We thus hear of this exchange regarding the soul's inherent propulsion to the divine and its peril if it fails to achieve such transformative union. I think that's the third quote. Does it not seem to you, reason asks, your image in a mirror wants in a way to be you and is false because it is not? Augustine says, well, it certainly seems so. You can hear Plato's influence here. (laughs) Do not all pictures and replicas of that kind and all artists' work of that type strive to be that in whose likeness they're made? I'm completely convinced they do. All right. The heart for Augustine really is this dynamic divine image in each of us who realizes sooner or later that no creature can consummate our longings. We are made in God's image and likeness, therefore only God can truly fulfill us. Our resemblance to the divine thus renders each of us capable of imitating the divine. You know, if you think instead of the Latin imago and you think of the Greek icon in our technological age, you actually get a better sense that the icon is that which points to the real thing behind it. And that's who you and I are, right? I mean, as Lewis says, you've never met a mere mortal. You and I are surrounded by possible gods and goddesses. And we are the faces, the icons of God. St. Thomas likewise sees how this likeness to God has made everyone capable of union with God. We are made for such union, and Thomas stresses in a way, Augustine does it, not yet in such union. Like Augustine's commentaries on Genesis, Thomas too stresses that the only begotten Son is the perfect image of the Father. What's that scripture quote? Colossians 1.15. Sorry, I thought I was giving this at Moody Bible College. No. Um, but created persons are made toward that image. Next quote on your handout. Now it is clear, Thomas writes, that in man there is some sort of likeness to God that it, is, that it derived from God as in its exemplar. However, it is not a likeness of equality, since in this case the exemplar infinitely exceeds that which it is the exemplar of. And so the image of God is said to exist in man not as a perfect image but as an imperfect image. Scripture signifies this when it says that man was made to the image of God. Ad or mercata iconin in the Greek. Creatures are made for God, but not as God. There is thus a drama built into every human life, a goal implanted deeply within our intellects and wills that cannot be found in the created order. This goal is, of course, God's very triune life, a goal only hinted at in our human life, but one that can be realized only by those who decide to live their human life in a divine manner. This, I believe, is the key to Aquinas' ethics, and why he stresses charity as the form of all virtuous living as the way by which humans imitate and receive the divine. To understand this divine drama more clearly, two metaphysical factors must be explored in light of Thomas's call to draw near to the archetype in whose image every rational soul is created. Imitation and participation emerge very strongly as Thomas describes the soul's fulfilled deiformity. First, the imitation of, for Thomas, is the innate impetus in each of us. Like Augustine's soul looking into the mirror and wanting to be like its protocopy, the soul, for Thomas, looks at God and cannot help but want to be like God. In his commentary on Lombard's sentences, we read, quote, An image always implies an imitation, because alone an image is empty and unfulfilled, unquote. For Thomas, this replication is found primarily in the reasonableness of the human creature. I think it's the next quote on your handout. Since it is because of his intellectual nature that man is said to be made to the image of God, it follows that he's made to God's image to the highest degree, to the extent that his intellectual nature is able to imitate God to the highest degree. But it is with respect to God's knowing and loving himself that an intellectual nature especially imitates God. For Thomas, although the created intellect be the closest existent to the divine nature, alone it is insufficient to attain the end for which it was brought into being. Not only does the nothingness from which you and I have been created haunt us at every turn, our mortality, our finitude, unaided, unable to receive the divine life, our sinfulness, of course, has vitiated our capacity to be one with God. We now stand in need of divine assistance, assistance outside of our own fallen condition. And for this, the light has entered the darkness. Next quote from the Summa 12. Since the natural power of the created intellect is not sufficient for seeing the essence of God, it is necessary that the power of understanding be added from divine grace. And this increase of the intellectual power we call illumination of the intellect. You all know this. And this is that light of which Revelation speaks, saying that, quote, the clarity of God will enlighten us. Namely, the society of the blessed who see God. And through this light they are made deiform. See that word? It sometimes escapes us. Made like God. That is like to God, according to the saying of St. John. When he shall appear, we shall be like to him, for we shall see him as he is. As the Imago Dei, Adam represents the first visible manifestation of the divine life. Yet as St. Paul knew, he is only the form of Futuri, Romans 5.14, the form, the shape, the prototype of the one to come, of the true one to appear later. Both Augustine and Thomas read Genesis in light of John's prologue. Both our theologians today depict the imago day of Genesis in terms of an escapable desire for the divine. Augustine, I think, stresses more that existential inquietum, that restlessness. Whereas Thomas tends to highlight more the rational nature of the composite human. For both, however, the word, the second person, of the Trinity, the Logos, is the principium in whom the Father creates, right? In the beginning, God, that beginning there is not time for Thomas or or Augustine. It's the word. He's the beginning. He's the arche in whom all things are formed. I wanted to share this next quote with you, even though it doesn't have anything to do with what we're here for. Um, It's really cool. Look at how Augustine explains creation's intelligibility. Or is it that when the unformed basic material, so think of prime matter, whether a spiritual or bodily being was first being made, it was not appropriate to say God said let it be made because it is by the word always adhering to the Father that God eternally says everything, not with the sound of a voice or with the thoughts running through time which sounds take, but with the light, that's the word, huh? light from light, God from God, co-eternal with himself, of the wisdom he has begotten. And imperfection or incompleteness does not imitate the form of this word, being unlike that which supremely and originally is, tending by its very want of form toward nothing. Rather it, this is every creature, friends, every creature, the chairs you're sitting on, rather it is when it turns everything in the way suited to its kind to that which truly and always is, To the creator, that is to say of its own being, that it really imitates the form of the word which always and unchangeably adheres to the father and receives its own form and becomes a perfect, complete creature. See what Augustine is saying? That all things are made in the word because all things are to the extent that they turn toward the father by imitating the son. The son who is eternally toward toward the father, all things imitate that turn. Whereas Augustine's Neoplatonism here equips him to stress this existential conversion toward the one, what Plotinus named epistrophe, right? Unto the good, unlike katastrophe, this talk. <laughs> All right. I don't know if they're drinking up there or paying attention. So. <laughs> Thomas, we know, has at his side the Aristotelian causes with which he explains the beauty of creation as a divinely implanted intelligibility seeking God as the telos, of all existence. Yet both of our thinkers need to show how this celestial course was fatally wrecked by sin and how the incarnation reveals God's tenderness toward all of his wayward creation. Augustine does this by a false security brought, away, brought about by our own desire for divinity. So if you remember Satan in the garden, what does he say at Genesis 3-5? What does he tell Adam and Eve? That God's holding away from them. <coughs> that you'll become gods, right? And Augustine says in one of his commentaries, says, Satan's not lying here. They will become gods. The problem is it's not Satan's to give. But think about this, friends. Satan's, you know, he's a fallen angel, right? He's smarter than, he's smarter than I'll ever be. He knows precisely how to tempt Adam and Eve. He couldn't tempt them with better watermelon or tastier cheese plates, right? Because in Eden, they had everything perfectly but the one thing they still didn't have, therefore the one thing by which they could still be tempted, was their deification, their godliness. And Augustine's the first in the church to, to read Genesis 3-5 that way. It's really clever. All right. Both Thomas and Augustine are convinced that the purpose of the incarnation, the new Adam, was not simply to free us from sin or to drag us into heaven. The essence of the enfleshment of the Son of God was to give those of us in the flesh a new identity, and to elevate us all into a new way of living. God became man, as C.S. Lewis wrote, to turn creatures into his children, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It is not like teaching a horse to jump better, but like turning a horse into a, a winged creature. Mere Christianity 4.10. Every time Augustine uses the term deificare, deification, which is only 18 times, which in a corpus of five and a half million words isn't much. He does so, though, only in the light of the incarnation of Christ. Thomas, however, is a bit freer with his taxonomy, as he is freed from the pagan milieu in which the bishop of Hippo found himself and his flock. Augustine's world was filled with gods and goddesses, and any inaccuracies or spiritualizations of the inherent divinity of man would certainly be misconstrued in Manichaean and pagan lands. We therefore receive most of Augustine's more sustained thinking on our becoming divine in his homilies and not in his public or doctrinal works. For example, we hear around the year 400 that the purpose of the Son's humanity is to elevate us as heavenly creatures. In a collection of lost sermons, only recently found, the bow sermons, we hear echoes of the confessions now translated into an idiom wherein the hope encountered In Christ's mortality is the answer to our own longings for divinity. Next quote, I think, Sermon 23b. (coughs) Imagine getting a homily. Maybe you do. I mean, you have good priests here, but this is, imagine getting a homily like this. To what hope the Lord has called us. What we now carry about with us, what we endure, what we look forward to is well known. We carry mortality about with us. We endure infirmity, but we look forward to divinity. Divinity. For God wishes not only to vivify but also to deify us. When would human <clears throat> infirmity ever dared hope for this unless divine truth had promised it? Still, it was not enough for our God to promise us divinity in himself unless he also took on our infirmity. As though to say, do you want to know how much I love you? How certain you ought to be that I'm going to give you my divine reality? I took to myself your mortal reality. We mustn't find it incredible, brothers and sisters, that human beings become gods. That is, that those who were were human beings become gods. When Thomas brings in such exchange language, (coughs) he normally focuses more specifically, at least in my limited reading, on the proper use of our reason, placing more attention on the use of the theological virtues than does Augustine. For example, we read next, As man participates in divine knowledge according to the intellectual faculty through the virtue of faith and according to the power of the will participates in divine love through the virtue of charity so also does man in the nature of his soul participate in the divine nature according to a certain likeness there's the imago by regeneration or recreation. True to Romans 12 Thomas understands our regeneration to be primarily through the renewal of our minds. This is why Thomas tends to use the substance deiformitas more often than the term deificare. It is in the mind of the human person, with the deform image, where one realizes one's capacity to live as God. Now, again, friends, remember, this isn't an autonomous God. Aquinas isn't a Mormon, hate to tell you. This is a sense of godliness. It's always participatory, it's always a reception, a relationship, it's not an autonomy. It is a receptivity more than it is a doing, a donation more than a plan of action. This is why the theological virtues, those gifts infused in us at baptism, are so central to Thomas's sense of deification. Even Christ's own perfect humanity is described as tota deiformis, commentary on the sentences three. Totally deiform, his humanity is totally deiform. It's not, it's not deified, because he's the deifier. right? Notice that difference. Christ's perfect humanity, is described as totally deiform, totally God-able. Through this assumption of our nature, then, the created person's deiformity is thereby actualized. In fact, as Thomas will write in his commentary on Dionysius the Areopagite, it is this visible assumption of the human condition, the incarnation, that emerges as the necessary and only fitting means by which the one who alone can deify can now be said to have a certain union to sensible creatures. And by this union of the invisible, divine, invisible natures, we are, quote, totalitair deificemur, totally defied, deified. The primary metaphor, which both Augustine and Thomas most frequently employed to describe this realization, is the doctrine of divine adoption. Perhaps this is not surprising. Unlike the originally pagan term theosis, adoption, quaeothecia, is scripturally sanctioned with a pedigree more initially agreeable to the Christian mind. It's a Pauline term, right? In teaching deification as adoption, one must be careful to distinguish, as we do in the creed, that there are, in fact, two ways of being a child of the Father. There is the eternally natural Son. Does this sound familiar? If it does, you're in good company. God from God, light from (coughs) light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. See the difference? We profess liturgically every Sunday. All right, I'm not in a Jesuit parish, so it's probably every Sunday. All right, we profess liturgically that there's one son who is by his very nature divine, eternally begotten, and thus consubstantial with the Father. But then there are those sons and daughters who are made children by grace. Both Augustine and Thomas turn to John 21 and our Lord's appearance to Mary Magdalene on Easter morning, where Christ himself suggests this distinction between his father and ours. Augustine writes, and I think this is on your handout, he does not say our father, therefore in one way my, in a different way your, by nature my, by grace your. See what Augustine is doing? He sees in Christ's words to Mary Magdalene, don't hold on to me, I've not ascended to my father, I've not gone to your father, that he's my father by nature, he's your father by grace. Thomas reiterates the same, quote, Christ says our Father and not my Father because he wants to preserve what is proper to himself. He is Son of God in a singular way. So also in John 20:17, he says, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father because he is mine in one way and yours in another. Think about Mass, friends. To whom do we pray? We pray to the Father. Why? Because when we gather in prayer, we are the children. We are the Christ. We are the Son offering our prayers in the unity of the Holy Spirit to the Father if you think about that long enough, maybe, you know, your lives will change a bit. I have three sisters, all who have adopted children. And if you walked into their homes, you couldn't tell the naturally born child from the adopted children. The African American and the Korean would give it away a bit. But when I look at the families, I think those kids are there in that home, not out of anything they ever did, but because of the love of their parents. And so think about it. You are a Christian, not out of anything you have done but because you have a father in heaven and a mother named Mary who has loved you so much, they have adopted you into this family. And this is an important, I think, component of deification. Another central component to this process of divine filiation is the deifying role of charity. Here is where our authors' Christology and pneumatology come together. In giving the Holy Spirit, the Son achieves a conforming unity between himself and the members of his mystical body. This gift is the supreme act of God, making creatures forever his own. Both Thomas and Augustine, of course, realize the Christian life is a matter of grace, but how that divine presence interacts with the now deified soul is a point of departure. They do disagree here, it seems to me. While Romans 5.5 is the most often relied biblical passage to explain the vis unitiva, the unifying power of charity, Thomas wants to give more sovereignty to the human will than Augustine is willing. In Augustine, the perfecting nature of charity is obvious. It is the divine life, synonymous with grace. We read, for instance, on your handout, I think, begin to love, to be made perfect. Have you begun to love? God has begun to dwell in you. Love him who has begun to dwell in you, so that by dwelling in you more perfectly, he may make you perfect. Ask your heart. If it is filled with charity, you have God's Spirit. In such passages, and they abound all over Augustine. Augustine quotes Romans 5.5 5 over 300 times. In such passages, grace and charity are synonymously working terms for Augustine. The life of the Spirit within the sanctified soul is the charity of God, who is, in a very particular way, the Holy Spirit, the love between the loving Father and the beloved Son. For Augustine, then, this identification achieves a certain Christiosis, a Christification, by which the believer is now made one with Christ. In corpus, see corpus there, incorporated into his body. Look at that next quote. Rejoice and give thanks, Augustine preaches. We have been made not just Christians, we have been made Christ. Augustine and many of the church fathers use Matthew twenty five and Acts nine as important passages to show how Christ himself identifies his well being with his disciples. You know, Matthew 25, right? Whatever you do the least of my brothers and sisters, you do to Acts 9.4. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? Now, think about that, right? You, you slap someone's child, you slap the parents, right? You're going to get it, right? When we love someone, we identify ourselves with the beloved, right? The next quote from Augustine. Now, however, I wonder if we shouldn't have a look at ourselves. He's always doing that, saying, look at yourself. If we shouldn't think about his body, because he also is us. Isn't that something? Christ is also you. After all, if we weren't him, this wouldn't be true. When you did it for the one at least of mine, you did it for me. If we weren't him, this wouldn't be true. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So we too are him, because we are his organs, because we are his body, because he is our head, because the whole Christ, totus Christus, one of Augustine's great images, the whole Christ is both head and body. Or again, identify his members with himself, just as he did when he said, I was hungry and you fed me. And as he identified us with himself when he called from heaven to the rampaging Saul who was persecuting God's holy people, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Though no one was laying a finger on Christ himself, see yourself reflected in me, Christ says. Such identity formation is particularly Augustinian, but it's not the main thrust of Thomas's equivalent passages. Thomas's interest was elsewhere. What the angelic doctor wishes to accomplish in these passages is to develop his sense of infusion when exploring Romans 5.5 5, and in so doing actually revise an earlier 12th century debate left unanswered by the Augustinian tradition. Briefly, which is code for, I'm not quite sure about this, the sentences of Peter Lombard had left unanswered the distinction between charity and grace. For the strict Augustinian, there is no separation, as the divine life and thus the divine presence in your created soul is always and everywhere one of charity. In Thomas's questions on grace, however, we encounter an unsolved problem. Able to draw from Aristotle in a way his predecessors were not, Thomas argued that a soul is never without its rightful potencies. Yet since no dynamis, no potency is equivalent to its substrate, so the soul's powers are necessarily other than the soul in which they reside, as well as to the state to which these powers elevate. Therefore, the nature to which these powers are infers futures is the divine life. They themselves are not the divine life. So Thomas writes, this is Summa um, Prima Secundae 110, It is manifest that the virtues acquired by human acts of which we spoke above are dispositions whereby a man is fittingly disposed with reference to the nature whereby he is a man, Whereas infused virtues dispose man in a higher manner, towards a higher end, and consequently in relation to some higher nature, that is, in relation to a participation of the divine nature, according to Second Peter 1.4, he's given us the most great and most precious promise that these you may be partakers of the divine nature. And it is in this respect of receiving this nature that we are said to be born again children of God. The virtues are thus the means by which the creator is elevated in the divine life, but they themselves are not the divine life. They are the gifts which allow him or her to be made a participant in the divine life. In an often quoted conference, Thomas, on the effects of charity, we learn that love has four basic effects on the soul. The first we learn is that when the gift of love is finally appropriated, received, we are deified, quote, for it is evident that by the very nature of the action, what is loved is in the one who loves. Right? You can hear Aristotle's Energia there, huh? What you, the, 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 the known is in the, in the knower. The, what is loved is in the one who loves. Therefore, whoever loves God possesses God in himself. For scripture says, whoever remains in love remains in God and God in him. It is the nature of love to transform the lover into the object loved. And so, if we love God, we ourselves become divinized. For again, whoever is joined to God becomes one spirit with him. Augustine adds, as the soul is the life of the body, so God is the life of the soul. Thus, the soul acts virtuously and perfectly when she acts through charity. And through charity, God lives in her. Indeed, without charity, she cannot act. For Scripture says, whoever does not love remains in death. The next three effects of love follow from this transformation. The second lies in how charity enables us to observe the divine commandments, combating the sloth that concupiscence has, 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 has rendered in us. Third, Thomas presents charity as the only real antidote to adversity in the spiritual life. That's nice, that only love will help you overcome difficulties, not self-determination. <coughs> love is what unites us to God in such a way that entertaining evil is no longer attractive. And finally, the fourth effect of charity examined in this conference is its ability to bring the creature to final happiness. Beatitude is a relationship wherein the creature finally possesses perfect love forever and is that love that brings us to the divine nature. But unlike Augustine, Aquinas never seems to say that nature is within. The final component running through both Augustine and Thomas' theologies of deification is the church and her sacraments. For Augustine, the church is essentially an identity between Christian and Christ, the head and members, the totus Christus. One homily in particular, Sermon 272. If you've never read Augustine's Sermon 272, it's a couple paragraphs, read it. It's beautiful. It sets this mystical drama in high relief. Augustine likens the three moments of baptism to the three movements of making bread. So I don't know when's the last time you heard a Catholic baptism, but there's still three parts. There's the exorcism, and the parents always get upset. Exorcism? Yeah, wait wait, 15 years. All right. <laughs> There's an exorcism which grinds an individual grain of wheat from its enclosed autonomy by removing the dead chaff. The triplex immersion of water by which wheat is made into one. And then there's the oil of chrismation wherein the bread is baked by the fire of the Holy Spirit. It's a really beautiful homily. After this mystagogy to the newly baptized, we then hear Bishop Augustine tell them something rather incredible. Henceforth, when they attend the sacred banquet, the Mass, They are to see not only Christ on the altar, but the story of their own lives. For they are the body of Christ, who is also present before the entire congregation. So if it's you that are the body of Christ and its members, it is the mystery meaning you that has been placed on the Lord's table. What you receive is the mystery that means you. It is to what you are that you reply, Amen. And by so replying, you express your assent. What you hear, you see, is the body of Christ, and you answer amen. So be a member of the body of Christ in order to make that amen true. Isn't that something? The baptized are to become bread, to become Eucharist for the world, by becoming ever more the body of Christ. St. Thomas, too, stresses the Eucharist as the sensible means by which the divine life not only takes root in the soul, but is magnified. We know for Thomas that the Eucharist is, quote, the consummation of the spiritual life and the end of all the sacraments, right? Tertia par 733. But we sometimes forget the deifying effect of communion for Thomas. Quote, material food first changes into the one who eats it, with the consequence that such food restores that person's lost strength and increases his or her vitality. On the other hand, spiritual food changes the one who consumes this into itself. The effect proper to this sacrament is therefore the conversion of one into Christ so that he may no longer live but so that Christ may live in him. Galatians 2.20 Therefore spiritual food both restores the inner man's strength which one had lost through sin while also increasing the strength of one's virtues. But notice what virtue is for Thomas to keep it consistent, right? It's life of Christ. It's relational. It's not just a toolbox for your own perfection. It's always a relationship. The Eucharist is the primary way for Thomas to that Christ continues to keep his promise of never leaving us orphans. In our adoration and humble reception of the most holy Eucharist, we allow Christ literally to live within us and so even live our lives no longer just for Christ, and I would say not only with Christ, but now as Christ. We freely allow Christ to be friend, master, and lord of every thought, word, and action. Conclusion. That's the good news. Bad news is it's an hour and a half. No. (laughs) Toward the end of the 4th century, Basil of Caesarea opens his watershed work on the Holy Spirit by associating proper theological speculation with personal growth and holiness. Without ever calling the Holy Spirit definitively God in this work, Basil does insist on the inherent divinity of the Spirit because of the great doxology where the saints pray to the Father through the Son in the unity of the Holy Spirit. These prepositional phrases of the prayer are essential for Basil because they indicate our relationship to each of the divine persons of the Trinity. All things to the Father, from whom all things have come, through his divinely adopted sons and daughters, pair Christum. Now, Per can also be understood as as there, right? We pray to the Father as Christ, as his adopted sons and daughters, in the one who unifies us as children, uniting us as members of the same body, the Holy Spirit. For as the great Cappadocian father suggests, if one does not care about God and God's communication to created persons in this way, chances are very good that the same person has no regard for his or her own well-being. This is really incredible. I wanted to bring this out for college students. Let's read this paragraph. Those who are idle in the pursuits of righteousness count theological terminology as secondary, together with attempts to search out the hidden meaning in this phrase or that syllable, So if you don't care about your Latin homework, you're probably a lazy slob, is Baz's point here. (laughs) But those conscious of the goal of our calling, sainthood, realize that we are to become like God as far as this is possible for human nature. But we cannot become like God unless we have knowledge of him. And without lessons, there will be no knowledge. Instruction begins with the proper use of speech and syllables and words are the elements of speech. While the association between holiness and parsing participles and scanning substantives may seem somewhat foreign to us, the church fathers studied theology intricately because they wanted to present, promote, and protect the Christian story. In short, men like Justin and Origen, Ambrose and Leo, theologized because they wanted to do their part in filling heaven with saints. Thomas Aquinas too spent his life studying, using the Dominican motto, in order to hand on the fruits of his own contemplation with others. Consequently, Thomas was faithful to his time in both the choir stall as well as the library scriptorium. It is as if once he found himself habited in the Dominican life, Thomas's entire existence would be spent in aiming to foster Christian virtue wherever he could make an impact, with first-year seminarians or seasoned missionaries. Yet sometimes when we look at medieval scholasticism, we can be tempted to forget that they shared this mission of building up the body of Christ. Too many popularizers... If you have the history channel here, cut it. And commentators focus on the ethereal and invented questions of angels dancing on pins or the counterfactuals that found expression in the medieval mind in a way they didn't in our patristic patrimony. In a more learned evaluation, St. John Paul II likewise understands this trajectory in Fides et Ratio, that in fact the stress the medievals had to give the autonomy of philosophical knowledge did actually come to injure the legitimate distinctions between the sciences, Eventually, independence became separation, and in a relatively brief time, such separation became mistrust in the early modern mind. Fides at ratio 46. It is not too much to claim the development of a good part of modern philosophy has seen it move further and further away from Christian revelation to the point of setting itself quite explicitly in opposition. Today, however, we see things, I think, a bit differently. You and I are here this afternoon because we enjoy the fruits of Vatican II's call to resaumment and the nouveau return to the actual text of the Church Fathers and the great medieval minds. We now read Thomas instead of about Thomas. We read the commentaries on Scripture of Thomas and not just the Summa. We read the Master instead of the manuals. As recent academics' pursuits attest, we've been given the space to see how central Christian teachings run through men like Thomas in ways not wholly appreciated before. And when we turn to Augustine's sermons and to Thomas's questions on grace and the Eucharist, we see most succinctly the essence of this pastoral call to teach us that God became human so we humans can become like God. Not, of course, in a substantive, hypostatic manner, but through the Father's invitation to allow us to participate in his triune life. In Adam, you and I are children of wrath, destined for decay and death. I say that to the end because I didn't think that would draw you in. Yet in our new head, Jesus Christ, and our new mother, Mary, we have been not only saved from sin and the grave, but have been made someone infinitely more. In Christ, we are now capable of conversing with God as a father. The Holy Spirit ennobles us to live lives that are, in the words of Augustine, ultra hominess, more than human. The Spirit infuses in us in a transformative charity, allowing the Father to see in us what he sees and loves in Christ. Third preface for the Sunday Mass. Such is the beauty of the Christian life. And this is precisely the core element of Christian doctrine that was so essential to thinkers like Augustine and Aquinas. Only now are we rediscovering how deification runs through central Christian theologians. With more and more of the dross removed, the voices of our tradition are beginning to speak again for themselves. And I encourage you all here to make these voices of our unmatchable Catholic tradition part of your regular prayer and study. Even as you leave this fine, fertile soil of Christendom, May you all celebrate the feast of St. Thomas Aquinas by holy study and holy lives in Christ. Thank you.